0: I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. For centuries, philosophers have been debating what makes a good life. Now, a long-running study offers answers. This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon.
1: Since 1938, the Harvard Study of Adult Development has periodically contacted its original cohorts and their partners and offspring. Almost all of these people filled out detailed questionnaires. What does science show us about the factors that produce happiness?
0: One key to a meaningful life is connecting with other people and paying attention to their needs, not just your own.
1: How much of our happiness is under our control?
0: Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, what 80 years of research tell us about happiness.
1: In The People's Pharmacy health headlines, the Food and Drug Administration has just announced that it's authorized a second bivalent booster vaccination for at-risk individuals. That includes people over 65... And immunocompromised patients. The Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna bivalent boosters will protect against the original COVID 19 virus as well as the Omicron BA4 and BA5 strains. Older Americans can get a second bivalent booster if at least four months have passed since their first booster. Those who are immunocompromised need wait only two months following a prior booster. The FDA is recommending that vulnerable populations consider a second booster because immunity fades after several months and the second shot can reestablish some protection.
0: The Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, or ICER, has just issued a report questioning the value of the newest Alzheimer's disease drug. The FDA approved lecanemab, known by the generic name lecanemab, in January. At the time, headlines proclaimed the drug an important advance in the treatment of dementia. But the new report, titled Beta-amyloid Antibodies for Early Alzheimer's Disease, paints a far less rosy picture. The ICER prides itself on providing an independent review of medical evidence free from financial conflicts of interest. In its new report, the Institute states that Lakembi provides a modest health benefit, but the potential for harm is not inconsequential. The authors note that people taking Lakembi experienced a slightly slower decline in cognitive function than those on placebo. It amounted to an average difference of 0.5 on an 18-point scale. Adverse reactions such as brain swelling, brain shrinkage, and bleeding may offset the small benefits. There's also the cost to consider. The list price of Lekembe is $26,500 annually.
1: Researchers believe that diet is important in driving the increasing epidemic of type 2 diabetes worldwide. Now, an analysis of dietary intake from 184 countries shows dietary factors account for 7 in 10 new cases of this metabolic disorder. In this condition, the body does not respond as it should to the hormone insulin. The investigators considered 11 dietary factors altogether, but found that three were most salient. These include eating too much refined wheat or rice and not getting enough whole grains. Finally, the consumption of processed meat also contributes to a population's risk of type 2 diabetes. Such diet-attributable diabetes is far more common in urban than rural settings, perhaps because the foods available in cities are more likely to be highly processed. The scientists note that no nation has experienced a decline in type 2 diabetes over the last 40 years. On the contrary, this condition more than quintupled from 1980 to 2020 from just over 100 million to 537 million individuals affected around the world.
0: One surprising food item that's associated with a lower risk of type 2 diabetes is ice cream. A fascinating article in the May issue of The Atlantic reviews a number of cohort studies, including the Nurses' Health Study and the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study. These are not placebo-controlled trials, nor are they international in scope. However, They are very careful studies collecting dietary data repeatedly from thousands of health professionals for decades. Analyses of these data have shown that people who eat ice cream are less likely to develop heart disease or blood vessel blockages than those who prefer other sorts of treats.
1: That certainly goes against expectation, but similar findings have cropped up in previous studies. In a few, ice cream eaters were less likely to develop type 2 diabetes. Many scientists question whether this association is real, much less causal. However, a new study suggests that people with prediabetes benefit from eating full-fat yogurt. When the volunteers ate full-fat yogurt, their fasting blood sugar dropped into the normal range on average. Yogurt is not ice cream, so the studies are not exactly comparable. But it does suggest that reactions to dairy fat need more research. And that's the health news from The People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon.
0: And I'm Joe Graydon. Today, we are hunting for happiness. That may sound grandiose, but the Harvard study of adult development has been following two generations of Bostonians for over 80 years to find out what makes a good
1: life. When the study began in 1938, nothing like it had ever been done before. Now, in its 84th year, it's still unique. It has gathered an unprecedented amount of detailed information about men coming from vastly different backgrounds, Harvard undergraduates, and those from poverty-stricken families in Boston, as well as their wives and children. What can we learn from those years of data?
0: To find out, we turn to the current director of the study, Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger is the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of
2: Happiness.
1: Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Robert Waldinger.
2: I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. And
0: thank you for joining us. Dr. Waldinger, you direct the Harvard study of adult development, which started in 1938. That's amazing. Those were really rough years. What prompted this research in the
2: first place? What was unique about it was that they were studies of thriving. So most of the research that had been done was about what goes wrong in human life so that we can help people. And These were two studies that actually didn't know about each other at first, and both were studies of what makes people thrive as they go through life.
0: Well, I'm curious
2: who participated because they were quite different populations. Exactly. One population was a group of Harvard College sophomores, 19-year-olds, who were thought by their deans to be fine, upstanding young men. So if you want to study normal development, you study all white men from Harvard. (laughs) We've since corrected (laughs) that. But at that point, that's what they studied. The other group was 456 inner city boys, boys born not just to the poorest families in Boston, but to families troubled by all kinds of domestic problems. So a very privileged group and a very underprivileged group.
1: Now, at this point, the young men who started your study in 1938 are in their late 90s if they have survived. Is that right?
2: And a few are over the age of 100.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Can you give us an idea of how this study has progressed and perhaps some of the top takeaways?
2: Sure. What we've studied all the way along are the big things about life mental health physical health work life relationships but what we've done is brought on new ways of studying life as they've developed so we started out with interviews and medical exams but now we draw blood for dna we put people in the mri scanner and look at their brains we stress them out and watch how quickly their hearts recover from stress so all these new methods that weren't even dreamed of in 1938 when the study began.
0: Well, I am fascinated by the idea that let's study these two diverse populations, privileged, probably financially very well off, and then these young people who were so disadvantaged. What do you think the
2: original researchers were hoping to learn? Well, the researchers who studied the Harvard men were actually trying to look at how normal, healthy development proceeds. And the inner city group was studied by a Harvard law professor and his social worker spouse. They were interested in juvenile delinquency, but also in why some children born into such troubled circumstances, how those kids manage to stay on good paths and stay out of trouble. And so the question was, what prevents juvenile delinquency when people are having such difficult backgrounds?
0: Now, I'm guessing, Dr. Waldinger, that the original hypothesis would have been, well, these upstanding young men attending Harvard are going to do very well in our questionnaires. They're going to flourish in life. And these impoverished kids are going to end up in trouble, you know, not not doing well you know, was that was that an original hypothesis and did it hold
2: out? It was an original hypothesis. But what we found was that the inner city group was no less happy or content with their lives than the Harvard group. And in each group we had some very happy people and some very unhappy people. And so what we know is that privilege doesn't determine that you're going to have a happy life. Nor does lack of privilege mean that you're doomed to a life of unhappiness.
1: So in other words, the old adage that's always seemed very suspicious, money can't buy you happiness, seems to work out that way.
2: It does work out that way. And they've done some good studies since then that suggest that once we get our basic material needs met, which are important and do contribute to happiness, but above that, The extra happiness that we get from making lots and lots of money is just not that great. Now, Dr. Waldinger, they did something fascinating.
0: The initial goal was, well, let's look at these male students at Harvard, these male underprivileged folks in the inner city of Boston, but then... They recruited the
2: spouses. How did that happen? <laughs> well, when, when I came on board, um, I said, you know, we need some women in this. And, and so we reached out to the spouses and many of the spouses said to us, it's about time. You know, we've been watching our husbands do this for years. And then, of course, we recruited the children, more than half of whom are women. And this allows us to look at gender differences in all the things that we measure. Now, how did you get involved? Because
0: you are an MD, and I'm guessing some of those early researchers were probably social workers uh, or people from different disciplines. What piqued
2: your interest? Well, the original founders were first a law professor and a social worker, and also at Harvard, two medical physicians, uh, what we would call now primary care doctors. What piqued my interest was this fascination with the human experience, if you will. So I'm a psychoanalyst. And in my clinical work, I do talk therapy. That's my specialty. And also, I'm a Zen practitioner. So I meditate on a cushion every day. And both of those are also other ways of taking deep dives into just the experience of being alive. And I thought that getting to watch these lives unfold over decades was about the most exciting thing I could do with my career.
1: <laughs> well, Dr. Weldinger, you and your co-author, Mark Schultz, have titled your book, The Good Life. And of course, there have been uh, numerous works of philosophy about the good life. And you say, this is lessons from the world's longest scientific study of happiness. Can you please tell us, in brief... What makes a good life? Well, what we found
2: was that the people who were the happiest and the physically healthiest were the people who had the best connections with others. That good connections with other people seemed to provide a bedrock, both of well-being and a buffer against life's inevitable hard times. And so what we found was that relationships we're the best predictor of a good life. What do you mean by relationships, please? Great question. So it's all kinds of relationships. We think that everybody needs at least one or two people in their life who have their back. Like we asked our original subjects at one point who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? And Many of them could list lots of people, but some of them couldn't list anyone. We think that everybody needs one or two relationships who are there for you no matter what. But then it varies a lot. Like we get well being, we get hits of well being from all kinds of relationships at work, in the community. The person who makes us our coffee at the, in the morning at the coffee shop. There are a variety of relationships that will give us these benefits.
1: And I'm assuming that even from the perspective of the barista, if they have a regular customer, that interaction may benefit both of them.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Because what it does is it reminds us that we belong and it reminds us that we're connected to each other as we move through the world.
0: We had an opportunity to be together with Terry's family this past weekend. And as we were on the bus going back to the rental car place, Terry's sister, who was right across from us, struck up a conversation with the woman who was sitting next to her. I mean, we were on the bus a total of what, Terry, about eight minutes? It, 10 yeah, minutes. It's,
1: it's a short ride. And this woman was a complete stranger and they had a lovely conversation. Mm.
2: You know, there's a study. Uh, not from our group, but another research group, assigned people the task of either taking a commuter train and doing what they normally did, staying on their phones, reading the paper, or the other group was assigned to talk to a stranger on a train. And when they asked people, how much do you think you're going to enjoy this? The people who were assigned to talk to a stranger said, I don't think I'm going to like this. After they completed their assignment, the people who had talked to a stranger were much happier on average than the people who just did their usual thing on a commuter ride.
1: You're listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Waldinger directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents and is the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz, Of The Good Life, lessons from the world's longest scientific study on happiness.
0: After the break, we'll hear about a few of the individuals in the study. How do they look back on their lives?
1: How do we define and analyze happiness based on the research?
0: Some people overcome really hard times. How do they do it?
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com
0: welcome back to the people's pharmacy i'm joe
1: Graydon, and i'm terry Graydon. the people's pharmacy is made possible in part by cocovia dietary supplements cocovia memory plus is formulated with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols a level clinically proven to improve three different types of memory and support brain function more information available at cocovia.com.
0: The People's Pharmacy is also supported by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia gaiaherbs.com.
1: Today, we're talking about what makes us happy over the long run. For more than 80 years, a study based at Harvard has been collecting longitudinal information on people's lives. What factors make for a good life? We're talking with Dr.
0: Robert Waldinger, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He's the current director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. His book is The Good Life. Lessons from the world's longest scientific study on happiness.
1: Dr. Weldinger, I wonder if you can tell us about a couple of the uh, individuals who participated in the study. And one of the people we'd like to know about is John Marsden.
2: John was one of our most interesting uh, participants and actually one of the saddest in our study. He was one of the least happy people among all of our 724 original participants. He was a Harvard college grad. So he started out, we thought, having a great life ahead of him with all the advantages. And he became a lawyer, a pretty high powered lawyer, won awards, made lots of money. He had one of the least happy lives because his relationships were so unsatisfying. He had two unhappy marriages, difficult relationships with his children. And we think that has to do with how he started early in life. He lost his mother early in his teenage years, and then he kind of felt he didn't fit in at college. And he felt that, well, he wasn't going to focus on relationships because they weren't very satisfying for him. And he wasn't sure people wanted him around. And that snowballed through his life to the point that he was a man who ended up pretty isolated and alone, even though he was married for much of his adult life.
0: And he reported
2: being unhappy? what 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 was
0: his sort of like end of life or you know review of
2: life analysis he was unhappy he felt that people were not kind people were not to be trusted he blamed his partner for a lot of his unhappiness and so he saw the world as a non an unwelcoming place basically and felt very much like he was disconnected from the world for good reason, because it it didn't pay off. It wasn't good for him.
0: And that's even because, A, he went to Harvard, B, he was a successful lawyer, C, he probably had a lot of financial
2: resources, but he was still unhappy. Exactly. And we found the reverse, that that there were people who had no financial resources and were so happy, w- embedded in family and friends and community.
1: Can you tell us about one of those, yeah, please? Could
2: you contrast uh,
0: John Marsden's story with Leo
2: DeMarcos? Sure. Well, and Leo, we contrasted Leo because he was also a Harvard guy. So when we compared them, we, we didn't want privilege and a good start at Harvard to complicate things, the differences there. So so Leo also went to Harvard And he started out wanting to be a writer, and he came back from serving in World War II, but he had to take care of his ailing mother. And so he got a job as a high school teacher, which wasn't his choice, but he found that he loved teaching, he loved mentoring students, he loved his colleagues, had a warm marriage, really good relationship with his children, and then ultimately his grandchildren. When we first interviewed him in midlife, the study workers thought He might be the most boring man in the study. And as we looked over his entire life when we interviewed him in his 80s, we said, this is probably the most mature as well as the most contented person in our study.
1: I'm interested in how the study interprets that. What can the rest of us learn from Leo?
2: Well, one thing we can learn is that you don't have to have fancy degrees, you don't have to have fancy titles, you don't have to make a lot of money, you don't have to become famous. We had people in our study who did all of those things. They weren't necessarily happy because they did those things. And Leo didn't need those things to be happy. That a lot of his satisfaction, most of his satisfaction was derived from his connections at work at home, in the community.
0: Well, you know, this brings up the question of how do we even begin to define happy or happiness? Because I think there there are a lot of our listeners right now who are going, hmm, this is kind of puzzling. You know, success, wealth, uh, respect, thats that's not – necessarily the defining factors. So maybe you could start by giving us a sense of how you even began
2: to analyze happiness. Sure. Well, you know, one of the things we know is that our culture tells us a lot of stories about what's supposed to make us happy. We get these subliminal messages all day long. You know, if you buy this car, you're going to be happy. If you serve this brand of pasta, your family dinners are going to be blissful forever, right? And so one of the things we're working against is a kind of tide of messages that says, if you have the money to buy a lot of things, if you, know, if you get a lot of awards, if you become famous for being famous, that's the ticket to a good life. But what we find when we study happiness rigorously is that actually... Happiness falls into two big buckets. So, one is hedonic well being. It comes from the word hedonism. And it means, am I having fun right now? So, yes, you know, a good party, a beautiful vacation, a lovely dinner, all of those make us happy in the moment. And that's momentary happiness. It might make us happy now, but an hour from now, something. Unhappy may happen to change our mood. There's another type of happiness that we term eudaimonic well being. It comes from the Greek. And it's basically that sense that life is good, life is meaningful and worthwhile. And all of us want some of both kinds of happiness, the hedonic kind and the meaning and purpose kind. But some of us prioritize one much more than the other.
1: How much of our happiness is under our control, and how much are we just at the mercy of whatever happens to us?
2: There's a good set of analyses about this. There's a psychologist named Sonia Lubomirsky who did an analysis of a lot of data that suggests that about 50%, half of our happiness, is inborn temperament. You know, because we all know people who are just habitually gloomy and other people who are habitually cheerful. And then what she calculated was that only about 10% of our happiness depends on our current life circumstances. And then another 40% of our happiness is under our control. So we can move the needle and 40% is a lot so we can help ourselves to be more happy to build happiness you know one of my teachers once said happiness is an accident but we can make ourselves more accident prone by doing some of these things like taking care of our health and investing in our relationships with people
0: well i suspect that a lot of folks are saying man the last three years have been really, really hard. COVID, oh, the pandemic. We were locked away at home. We didn't get to go and see our friends or our family. Oh, life is so bad. It's so divisive politically and economically. Things are a mess. Life sucks. And then there are other people who somehow flourished during the pandemic because they reconnected with friends on Zoom and they had regular book club meetings and they did all sorts of things to stay connected. So, uh, uh, you know, can you kind of give us a little parallel? Because in the 1930s, when this study started, things were also rough. It was economically disastrous for an awful lot of folks and your inner city Boston Subjects were probably having a really tough time as as young adults. So this idea of, oh, woe is me, life is so
2: hard. How do some people overcome that? I'm so glad you asked that question. Because we asked people, we asked our original participants, how did you get through hard times? We specifically asked them, how did you get through the, De- the Great Depression? Because all of these young men were children during the Great Depression. And the Harvard men were of the age to go serve in World War II. Almost all of them did. Many of them saw terrible combat. And we asked them, how did you get through these great crises? To a person, they always mentioned some kind of relationships. So it might have been the neighbors got together and we shared whatever we had during the Depression. We got each other through. Or it was when I was at war, it was the letters from home, knowing that people were waiting for me. It was my buddies in the service uh, who I was there for, and they were there for me. But everybody mentioned connections. And so I think, first of all, your point is, you know, the pandemic isn't unique in terms of big life crises. They come at us from time to time. And that what we find is that relationships are protective in this way from the inevitable challenges that that keep, keep coming into every life.
1: Now, you've mentioned that um, part of our happiness has to do with just the temperament that we may be born with. Are there factors in early childhood that can shape our, our mental health and have an impact on our later life?
2: Yes. We know that childhood experience has a lot to do with shaping our later life. Actually, we surveyed the second generation, the kids, and found that over 80% had some kind of childhood adverse event. Everything from serious illness to being bullied to losing a parent to frequent moves, all of those things. And so... What we find is that those can shape how we view the world as we grow up. So for example, trauma. One of the reasons why trauma is so terrible is not just because of the harm that it does, physical harm, sexual harm, but because it takes away our trust in the world that trauma makes us believe that the world isn't safe and that people can't be trusted. And when we carry that into adulthood, that's what we come to expect. But, and I've seen this in my clinical practice, but we also saw it in the, in the study that people can have corrective experiences, that people who find friends, romantic partners who don't fulfill their expectations who turn out to be trustworthy and kind and reliable that that can go a long way to correcting these terrible pictures of life that children can get from being traumatized so what it, what it tells us is that childhood experience does shape our adult life but it doesn't determine your destiny There's a lot that can correct for childhood experience as we grow older.
0: Well, Dr. Waldinger, at the risk of being a little too personal, I am one of those children. That is to say, when I was a child, I had polio. It would have been 1947, 1948, and I was locked away literally in a children's hospital in a... um, in a ward, a polio oh. ward, wow. where my parents could not come, ever. Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> when he was two.
0: Uh, and, uh. and and so, you know, once a week on Sundays, they would look through a window and wave at me. Mm. And the nurses would say, you know, wave back. There are your parents. No. And I was in traction, which meant I couldn't move. Uh. And... Um, I suppressed those memories for many, many years. I had nightmares, yeah. but I had completely forgotten uh, in quotes uh, about that experience. And I was very untrusting because the the healthcare workers that came would always say this isn't going to hurt and it always hurt. Yes. Whatever they did to me always hurt. Yeah. So I didn't trust people very much because I had experienced that that lie so many times as a, as a young child. But I've overcome that. I mean, partly because I have the most amazing partner in the world. Mm-hmm. Terry is an incredible human being, and I am very fortunate. But I also have good friends, and our family is wonderful. And so I feel like I'm really blessed. I'm really happy, despite that childhood trauma. So it is possible to overcome those experiences.
2: Yes. And that's such a powerful story because, you know, you were two years old I mean, before you really had much in the way of words, let alone complex thinking to understand what was happening to you. And so what we take in at that age is so powerful. Um, and so for you to be able to live through that and move beyond much of it, um, is a powerful testament to what's possible. And as you say, it's possible in part and maybe in large part because of the relationships that we encounter and that we build that end up helping us gradually to change those terrible expectations that we develop through traumatizing experiences. It's not always easy. How can people who
0: are still remembering some of their traumas in life, how can they overcome them with the help of professionals such as
2: yourself? Well therapy really does help. It can go an enormous distance to helping people um, understand, first of all, what they're carrying around and then see beyond it, see other possibilities. The other thing is that group support can be enormously helpful. Talking with other people who've had traumatic experiences in the past, because it's so helpful to feel like, oh, there are these people who get it because they have experienced it. That's a a great help for many people. Um, And then finally, it's moving away from relationships that end up recreating the childhood trauma. So many of us accidentally seek out the experiences that recreate the worst things that happen to us as kids, therapy can help us recognize that better and then help us step away from those relationships that are harming us again. Um, so those are all different windows on how we can move beyond some of the hardest experiences that we have as kids.
1: You're listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital, and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger is the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of... The Good Life, lessons from the world's longest scientific study on happiness.
0: After the break, we'll find out what the participants' spouses contributed to the study.
1: How did the things they shared about their husbands' lives help the researchers learn what makes people happy? What
0: happens when relationships go bad? Can they be repaired?
1: You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon.
0: This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, backed by 20 years of scientific research and the maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, Cocopro Cocoa Extract. flavanols are among the most studied plant-based bioactives today and are clinically proven to promote cardiovascular and brain health for the long term, supporting a strong heart, and better memory.
1: Get 15% off your order of any Cocovia product by using the discount code ppod 15 Learn more at Cocovia. And remember, that discount code is P-P-O-D-15.
0: These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon.
0: And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. Cocovia Memory and Focus is a unique formula made with a special blend of ingredients that work together to promote attention and support long-term memory. It supports five areas of brain performance, all in one capsule. More information available at Cocovia.com.
1: And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia GaiaHerbs.com.
0: Today, we are learning what makes for a meaningful, satisfying life. A study begun in 1938 with Harvard undergraduates expanded to include young men from troubled families. As the study followed both groups, their wives and children too. How did people achieve life satisfaction
1: or even
0: happiness?
1: To find out, we're talking with Dr. Robert Waldinger. He's director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital and a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Waldinger is co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation, and he directs a psychotherapy teaching program for Harvard psychiatry residents. He's the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of the book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness.
0: Dr. Waldinger, you told us a little earlier that, um, that you recruited the spouses during your tenure. In helping to run the study, and I'm just curious. They 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 were kind of happy that you said, "Oh yeah, let's talk to the wives. Let's talk to the the partners of our of our participants."
2: What did you learn from them? Well, we learned one thing that horrified us, which is that a few of the wives had filled out some of their husbands' questionnaires, which a researcher <laughs> never wants to hear. Um, Oops. But But in a more substantial way, one of the interesting things we learned from many of the women. So this was the World War II generation. So the majority of the spouses were homemakers. They did not work at paid jobs. They worked really hard at home and they were often powerhouses of volunteer and organizational work. And so Our 20 something researchers who were often, you know, college graduates bound for graduate school, they would go to these homes and interview these women about their lives. And they would come back saying, wait a minute, these women were so happy with their lives. How is that possible? They, They weren't able to have jobs. They weren't able to go out and, you know, make their way in the working world. They were so confined, but they don't sound that way as they talk about their lives. So one of the things we learned is that cultural expectations make a big difference in life satisfaction. These were women who had come to expect that this was what made a good life, being at home, raising a family, being an important person in your community and often running things in your community, but not going out and being the CEO of a company, for example. So what we learned was that cultural expectations change across generations and that they make a big difference in how people look at their lives and whether their lives are satisfying.
0: So Dr. Waldinger, I'm just curious, what were some of the things that the partners shared about? their husbands, and about their lives that were the most meaningful, that 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 kind of gave you a peek
2: into what really makes people happy? Well, this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it will speak to your question. We asked people when they got to their 80s to look back on their lives and tell us what they regretted most and what they were proudest of. And Many of the women, the spouses said that what they regretted the most was worrying so much about what other people thought, that the men didn't talk about that as much. They regretted spending too much time at work and not enough time with the people they cared about. But the women said, I wish I wasn't so worried about what everybody else was thinking. And we found that revelatory again, a set of expectations, perhaps, based on how women were raised, how they were socialized, to be very concerned about what other people were expecting and thinking. And so we found that a kind of meaningful gender difference.
0: What about relationships that go bad? I mean, I I suspect that a lot of people felt sad, unhappy about Estrangement from a child or from a from a sibling,
2: how did that impact people's sense of well-being? It had huge impact. So those estrangements, those cutoffs of relationships cause lots of pain, and it's pain that's ongoing. And so the people who did the best were the people who were somehow able to avoid family feuds, who were able to avoid those kinds of terrible rifts where people don't talk to each other. Every family had difficulties. Every family had arguments and differences. But the people who found life more satisfying were the people who found ways to work through differences in order to go on and keep the connections. And that was almost uniform across the board. Nobody was happy with cutting off relationships.
1: Dr. Weldinger, did your study offer any insights into how relationships like that, that go sour, can be repaired? Yes.
2: I mean, what we find, and certainly I know this from my clinical work as well, that trying to simply face toward a disagreement, a difficulty, and say, could we talk about this? And then bringing to the conversation curiosity. So if we think about it, a lot of the difficulty is that I think I know what someone else is going to say. I know what they believe. I uh, I've got their position all figured out. And then we stereotype each other. What happens if we bring kind of radical curiosity to it? Well, tell me why. Why do you think that? Um, how did you get there? Uh, what would it be like if we, you and I found a compromise where we didn't quite do it my way, but we didn't quite do it your way either? Having those conversations where you just try to open it up so that it isn't a win-lose proposition. And that we get really curious about what's so important for somebody else about their position, that those are ways to move beyond the the standoffs in our relationships.
1: Now, if you happen to feel that you're not a very outgoing person, maybe you feel like your temperament is shy, is it still possible for you to have meaningful relationships? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the
2: problems with our culture is that we kind of glorify extroverts. We, we glorify party animals, right? People who need lots of people in their lives. We're all on a continuum between shyness, introversion, and extroversion. There's nothing abnormal or problematic about being an introvert all it means is that you need fewer people in your life and that having lots of people around can be stressful. So what we are pretty sure of is that shy people simply need fewer people in their lives, but that they need people and they need those people, you know, we said you could call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared. Uh, So everybody needs that. But that beyond that, the number of people you need in your social world really varies. It's a highly individual determination. And, and each of us can check in with ourselves and say, well, who do, do I have enough people in my life? Do I have too many people in my life? And how can I correct for that if I don't have the right mix of social connection and solitude?
1: Well, I really love the fact that uh, you and Dr. Schultz, your co-author, put into The Good Life uh, a couple of exercises in which the reader is asked to actually write down who is in your life in this position or that position. It's, um, it's a great challenge. I am wondering how the participants in your study felt about answering questionnaires, you know, as often as they had to. <laughs> how, how did that affect their lives?
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, we asked them, um, actually, I had a couple of points, but but fairly recently, maybe ten years ago, we said, "How has being in the study affected you?" And you know, some people said your questions are a nuisance, and you know, I'm always getting more requests from you to participate. But many people said this has been a really powerful experience because what I knew was that every so often you were going to come back to me and ask me. About my life. And what it did was it made me keep reflecting on my life as I went through each month and each year. And so it it was a kind of self monitoring that the study created for people. We know that we affected their lives simply by coming back again and again and asking them to tell us about their lives. So we were not a hands off study, if you will. Dr. Robert Waldinger, I would like to know how
0: running the study as the fourth director
2: has affected you. Oh, well, it's been a real privilege. I mean, to to get to look at these lives has been amazing for me. I can sit down and open someone's file and start with them in their teenage years and just flip through the pages and read bits of what they said about life at age 30, at age 50, at age 80. And that's a that's a privilege that almost nobody gets. So I feel very lucky. But what it's done for me is it's made me pay more attention to my own relationships. So, you know, I'm a professor. I could work 24-7. And once my kids left home, I found myself working too much because I didn't have them to drag me away and do things. And, and what I found was that I started to pay more attention to reaching out to friends, like to say, let's go have coffee, let's have dinner, let's go for a walk in a way that I didn't used to. And what it's done is it's kept the, re- the important relationships in my life fresher and more vibrant and more active. And that's because of my research. And how can we benefit
0: from what you've learned and how you've incorporated these practices into your life so that someone who may be listening right now and saying, well, I've been feeling isolated the last couple of years because of the pandemic. I lost some friends or some family members. How do I
2: rebuild relationships? And my answer would be be active. So even if you think, oh, that person isn't going to want to hear from me, I haven't talked to them in ages, just ping them. Think about somebody you miss, somebody you would love to connect with and just send them a text, send them an email, or if you're brave, call them on the phone. And it won't be great every time, but you will be amazed at the number of times people will get back to you and say, I'm so glad you reached out. In fact, I've done this. Sometimes when I give talks, I will I will ask people in the audience, okay, take out your phone. Just think of that person you want to connect with. Send them a text right now. And then during the question and answer, I say, okay, did anybody get anything back? And so many hands shoot up. And people say, you know, my friend was so glad I reached out. He had just had surgery and he wanted to talk. And, you know, there, there were just so many positive stories after people take these tiny actions to reconnect with people. So that's what I would suggest that the listeners of this program think about doing, maybe even right now after this show is over. Well, I can
0: testify to the value of that. We were in Anaheim, California, just a couple of weeks ago at a health conference. And as we were heading back to the airport in the taxi cab, Terry said, oh, your cousin Robert lives right across the the road from where we're going. And I I called him right up. I hadn't talked to him in years. Mm. And I left a message because he didn't answer the phone, but he called me back shortly thereafter. And we had the most wonderful conversation, reconnecting, talking about family members. It was such a joy. So I hope our listeners will do very much the same thing. Dr. Waldinger, you know, there are so many opportunities sometimes during the course of a day or the course of our lives that, that seem trivial or insignificant, but, but are so important. It's like, you know, you you run into the post person, you know, the person delivering the mail and you could just, you know, grab your mail and run, or you could ask that person how he or she is doing what's going on in their lives, how things are treating them. And, And sometimes those casual conversations can be very
2: powerful. Can you explain why that's important? It seems to have a lot to do with reaffirming our connectedness to life and to the world. So when you have that conversation with your mail carrier, it's like reminding us, oh, yeah, yeah, we're connected. We're doing this. We're living this life together. And. Um, And also finding out about somebody else's day can remind us of what's important in life, which is really, you know, how is it for you right now? How is it for me right now? So those are the kinds of things that help us just connect with the, the, uh, the joy of being alive and being with people in the world. The other thing that research has shown us is that these casual connections that we make People who are peripheral in our social network often provide great benefits. You're more likely to find your next job, not from one of your nearest and dearest friends, but through a connection with somebody who's pretty peripheral to you, the research shows. So, all of these things make these loose, casual connections really worth having. I'd like to ask you
0: about people who have had challenges. We had a next door neighbor. Her name was Grace, and it was an appropriate name because she was one of the most amazing people I've ever known. Um, Grace had a really hard life. Her husband uh, became very ill and died at a fairly early age. Her son became ill. It posed tremendous challenges to the family. And yet every time I'd see Grace, she would have the most gorgeous smile and would give me the biggest hug and was just the kindest, most energetic, most wonderful woman. I mean, she was just a delight. She was so much fun to be around. I loved Grace. And And yet she was just a neighbor, just a kind of a casual acquaintance, and yet she was very meaningful in my life and made me feel so much more alive and vibrant, just just knowing about her and interacting with her. I think there are a lot of people who feel like, oh, I got such a raw deal, and and they don't have that joie de vivre that Grace Sharp had.
2: Well, and, and we, we're not all naturally like Grace, right? You know, And Grace sounds like she was unusual in her appreciation for life. But we can cultivate gratitude, and that allows us to become more like Grace. So what does it mean to cultivate gratitude? It's such a catchword now. But what it literally means is paying attention to what's going well. So yes, I may have suffered a loss. I may have suffered a setback. But what's okay right now? That I right now I have a roof over my head. I have food security. My basic needs are met. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the meditation teacher, used to say to people, let's celebrate today because it's a no toothache day. Now, think about it. Most of the time we don't think, well, gee, isn't it wonderful that I don't have a toothache today? But if we start reminding ourselves of what's not wrong, of what's right, it literally lifts our mood and it makes us brighter and more energetic. Grace probably did that naturally, but there are ways of cultivating that for ourselves.
0: Finally, Dr. Waldinger, I'd like to ask you about your life as a psychoanalyst because I've always been in awe of psychoanalysis, and yet it seems like your specialty has fallen into harder times. What I mean by that is insurance companies love it when a psychiatrist prescribes an antidepressant or an antipsychotic or you know some other kind of anti-anxiety agent and taking time to actually talk with clients over a period of weeks months or in some cases even years is kind of frowned upon like do we really have to pay for that and a lot of people can't afford you know an hour with a psychoanalyst every week for months or years so I guess what has really struck me recently was the idea that talk therapy or psychoanalysis can have a profound impact on the brain. And it can change the way people see the world around them versus, oh, it's just all chemicals and all we have to do is rearrange serotonin and norepinephrine and everything will be perfect. So, Why is psychoanalysis and your specialty still so important and relevant
2: today? Well, what the research finds is that talk therapy is incredibly powerful, as powerful and sometimes more powerful than medications, depending on who the person is and what the problem is. Talk therapy is life-saving for many people. Um, And in fact, when they do studies comparing, you know, insurance benefits where talk therapy is offered and covered by insurance and insurance plans where it's not, they find that people who get talk therapy have fewer unnecessary medical visits, fewer unnecessary surgical operations, Fewer unnecessary hospitalizations for medical reasons. So there are lots of ways that talk therapy ends up saving money, even though in the short term, it looks like it might be more expensive than medication. It's, it's a, a very powerful tool that we want to make more and more available. So I lead a program at Massachusetts General Hospital in talk therapy. That's what I teach. And, you know, I teach young psychiatrists to talk and listen uh, so that they have something to do in addition to reaching for their prescription pads.
1: Dr. Waldinger, you also, uh, you and Dr. Schultz talk about the importance of actually spending time prioritizing physical face-to-face time with the people who are most important to you. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: One of the things that we often find, because life is so demanding, you know, because work and home life and uh, and so many obligations call our attention, we say, okay, I don't have time right now. I'll put this off connecting with my friends, with my family members. And what we find is that, first of all, time slips away, as we know, life speeds by and we can lose the opportunities. And what we found was that as we studied people, the people who were the happiest, the most contented were the people who did exactly what you just described, where you you said, oh, my cousin lives nearby, I'm going to reach out to him. And that the people who didn't put it off, who did it now, who did it today, this week, those were the people who felt more alive and felt more like life was truly meaningful, even in the midst of all the demands that life brings our way. It's a wonderful
0: message. We are so grateful for you writing this amazing book, The Good Life. In the minute we have left, what would you like our
2: listeners to do going forward? Uh, Two things. One is, as as one of our participants said, take care of your body like you're going to need it for a hundred years. So really take care of your health. It matters. That's what our study shows. And take care of your relationships, whether it's taking care of the ones you have or reaching out to build new ones through volunteer work, through joining clubs, whatever it might be. Just put yourself out there, even though it's risky. It's worth the
1: risk. Dr. Robert Waldinger, thank you so much for writing this wonderful book and for talking about it with us on The People's Pharmacy today.
2: Well, this was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Robert Waldinger, professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital and co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. Dr. Waldinger is also a Zen master who teaches meditation. He's the co-author with Dr. Mark Schultz of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study on Happiness.
0: Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music.
1: This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy.
0: The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, Connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, gaia com.
1: And by Cocovia Dietary Supplements, CocoFlavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health made with a concentrated flavanol extract. More information at CocoVia.com.
0: Today's show is number 1,338. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments.
1: Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. This week, the podcast contains some extra information about the power of casual conversations and how people cope with challenges. We'll also find out why psychoanalysis is still important.
0: At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you will also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon.
1: And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do
0: and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in.